0: So you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to Galatians <clears throat> chapter 5. Picking up in verse 16. Found on page 975 of the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. 975. As we come to verse 16 of Galatians 5, you ought to remember the context that Paul, the whole book so far, the whole letter, has been contending for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. False teachers had come into these Galatian churches saying that to to be right with God, really, you needed more than just faith. You had to add faith to your works. So, come to chapter 5 and verse 13. Paul is at that point where he's anticipating their rebuttal yet again. Paul, uh, he knows they're going to say antinomian antinomian, you're going to call him names, they'll say once you take away the motivation of earning their salvation, you only have uh, licentious, lazy, loafing, lawless people. Why work towards righteousness, sacrifice for the kingdom? Why study hard for the grade when it's already been given in Christ Jesus on our behalf? People will not live for God if it is by grace. And, and to answer this charge, Paul so far has basically said, love, love would cast out license. And so the last two sermons we've been studying together, we've said that, um, we, we've tried to explain why Paul points to love. In love we find true freedom, the freedom for which we are designed. We are uh, then changed from a An an N shaped universe to a U shaped universe, so we can love God for his own self rather than the gifts he might give us. And because of the opposite, as we found in verse 15, the biting and devouring, consuming one another, that is the opposite of a self giving love, rather a self satisfying consumption. And as we turn to verse 16, I think that, that first question is still in view why does the Christian continue to labor? work when they already have the goodness of grace? And there's a second question on top of that I think also. It's a question that ought to come naturally out of verse 14. If this new law, the summation of the law is love your neighbor as yourself, that is a, a weighty law. Indeed, it's an impossible law to keep, to use all the same ingenuity and effort and care and concern that you provide for your own needs and the needs of your family to do that for your neighbors and even your enemies, the law of love as Jesus fulfilled it, laying his whole life down, that's that's too much. That's an impossible standard. How might someone be able to keep that law? So, you see, there's two questions. Why do Christians still work when they've been given grace? And how could Christians ever begin to fulfill that law? Those are the, text, the questions they, rising out of the text that Paul is anticipating as we come to verse 16 through 18. So let's read our text, Galatians 5 and verse 16. <clears throat> but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law." In the face of the question, why work when it's all grace, and in the face of the question, how work, how can I keep that law? Paul says, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, for that answer to make sense, there's some, uh, some understanding needs to come, some assumptions Paul's making. Especially in two A areas, we'll say Paul uh, is making some soteriological assumptions and some anthropological s- assumptions. There's there's teaching we need to understand about our doctrine of salvation, our soteriology, what we believe about how we're saved, and also something we need to fill in the blank about who we are in Christ, what redeemed humanity, our anthropological assumptions. Those will be our first two points. Paul's teaching us about our salvation and about redeemed humanity. And then hopefully we'll see the payoff. Why this is such glorious good news in verses 16 through 18 of the book of Galatians. Why work, how work? The Spirit, Paul says. So let's let's begin by reminding ourselves, perhaps, of Paul's soteriological assumptions. In verse 16, when Paul commands you, but I say, walk by the Spirit, that can feel and seem rather abstract, ethereal, unclear. Uh, what does that mean, Paul? How does one walk by the Spirit? Do you mean walk uh, in a spirited way, like the pep band and the spirit squad with a good attitude? You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. No, that's not what Paul means when he says, walk by the Spirit. No, Paul, I think, is assuming you have the fundamental mechanics of how our salvation works, and there's nothing more fundamental than what Paul so often calls being in Him, in Him. It's a phrase he uses throughout his letters over and over again, it refers to our doctrine of union with Christ, union with Christ. That's what Paul explains in Romans 5. That all humanity is either in one man or in another. It's either in our first father, Adam, or in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. All humanity stands under one fatherhood or another, either in him or in him. This is the way Paul speaks as he praises the Lord and unfurls the doctrine of salvation. I say his soteriological assumptions in Ephesians chapter 1, that famous chapter, where 14 times we read the phrase, in Him, in Him, in Him. See, our in Himness, our union with Christ is the most foundational way to speak of our salvation. As Paul says to Timothy, in Him the promises of God have their yes and amen. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he explains, you are in Christ Jesus, in Him who became to us, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that we ought to have, in uh, clear in our minds, a Christ-centered soteriology, doctrine of salvation. It is in His life, His death, His resurrection, His righteousness, His goodness, His redemption, His grace that is given to us that we have salvation at all. And the question that ought to follow is, how? How? Well, of course, as Paul has been arguing from the start of the letter, we might say, how are we saved? Well, we're saved by faith. Faith alone. We might say that faith is the instrumental means of our justification. And yet, to, to look deeper, where did that faith come from? Was that something we drummed up from within, something that I had that my neighbor didn't? No, what do we believe about faith? And no, we say that even our faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Our faith comes, we might say, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We might say that faith and the Holy Spirit are two sides of the same coin, two distinct and inseparable instrumental means of our salvation, of our union with Christ. Paul assumes that you know how we get what Jesus did long ago and far away communicated to us. If if Jesus is the, the water tower of our salvation, and in him are all the benefits of God, all the goodness, all the grace, all the righteousness, how does it come from Jesus to me, from Jesus to you? say by the instrumental means of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we might imagine if Jesus is the water tower, are the pipes, the unsung hero to bring us the living water of life that springs up in our souls. Paul assumes, you know, that any Christian has the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. The third person of the Trinity is communicating the presence of God to you. It is He. Yes, God the Father is with you. Jesus Christ, who promises to be with you, is with you, but they are mediated how? How are they with us? You might say spiritually, by the Holy Spirit. And this alone, Paul's assumption, you know that the Holy Spirit is with you at all times to be walking with, see, you might say that, that alone has immediate and important application for every believer. For example, His presence in your life, if the Holy Spirit is truly with you at all times, being in Him, connected by the Holy Spirit, that leaves no excuse for sin. You can't say, as a Christian, I couldn't do it. I couldn't resist the temptation. You can't say of your husband, I just can't take him anymore. You can't say of your mother-in-law, your wife, or the hard person in your life, I just couldn't put up with it you can't say, "Uh, I, I I couldn't say no. Why? Well, fundamentally, being a Christian means that the power of God is mediated to you by the Holy Spirit. Any sin we commit as Christians, we are fully responsible for. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10 that he provides a way out. He provides a means of standing up under temptation. That means, we know, is the instrumental means of the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of God with us by the Spirit. So that when Paul says, walk by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit, Paul says walk by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian in Christ saved. And moreover, when he says walk, That is an imperative because you have agency, you have a responsibility in your fight against indwelling sin. Of course, we're not all of a sudden made perfect in this life. We are not all of a sudden uh, delivered from sin, nor are we off the hook as if believing in Christ and being justified, we… you know, have been given the immunization against any other sin counting against us, or as if our sin no longer mattered. It's uh, often a a misunderstanding, perhaps, that to be justified by faith alone is the only way of speaking about our salvation. This can be a common misunderstanding, mistake, to equate the entirety of the concept of salvation with the understanding of justification. No, even as we read this evening in our our affirmation of faith, there are many benefits that flow from Christ to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being in Him, many distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous benefits come to us. That's an important concept in itself, the, the DIS of our salvation. The benefits come are distinct, that there's, one, there's particularity in each one. They're inseparable, they all come together, and they're simultaneous. That is, the hour you first believe, they flow to you. We might think, okay, well, what happens to you when you are saved? When by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are united with Christ, the, the head of our salvation. Well, You might not feel any different or look any different or smell any different or even immediately be acting any different. And yet, spiritually, truly, you would say you are born again. The benefit of regeneration flows to you by the Holy Spirit. Your heart of stone is taken out, your heart of flesh is replaced. Ezekiel 37 The valley of dry bones happens to you spiritually. You might say simultaneously, distinctly, inseparably, at the same moment the benefit of adoption flows to you you are no longer an orphan in the universe but indeed the god of all creation is your father you're giving a new identity a new sense of belonging a new reality for your life as adoption flows to you distinctly inseparably simultaneously the benefit of election flows to you it is revealed that indeed from before the foundation of the world you've been chosen by god not based upon your good works but upon his mere good pleasure distinctly, inseparably, simultaneously, you might say the benefit of justification flows to you. Justification being one of the benefits that flows that you are no longer guilty before him, but have been declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Distinctly, inseparably, simultaneously, the benefit of sanctification flows to you. The work of God has begun in you. The process of growing holiness and Christ-likeness has begun. And there, there are more benefits yet. Each one flowing from Christ, each with a, a distinct beauty and helpfulness in its understanding. But for our purposes, the, the distinction that is especially important in verse 16, 17, and 18 is the the have clarity between, we might say, uh, the, the colors of the rainbow that flow to us, uh, the, the red and the green, or perhaps the ele- the, the, the benefits of justification and sanctification. We need to have clear in our minds when he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There is a, a difference Paul is speaking about. He's no longer speaking about justification by faith alone. He is now shifted to speak about the benefit of sanctification as it flows to us. And we have clear in our minds that justification is a punctilious. Act of God. It happens in one moment. Sanctification is a progressing work of God that happens over many, many moments. Justification is a forensic, legal, objective, external thing that happens to you. Our justification is monergistic. It comes from them from one to another, from God to us. Sanctification is an organic something that happens in us that we participate with synergistically instead of monergistically. You see, Paul is not contradicting himself at all when he calls us to work, to walk, to make progress by the Spirit. He's speaking of a different benefit of our salvation. Our justification is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, our sanctification we play a part in. Our wills are involved. We are indeed called to obedience still. We are commanded to walk. We cannot simply be passive. You see, Paul assumes we see him move from justification to sanctification. He tells us to walk by the Spirit. He, under, he, he assumes we understand the mechanics that we are united to Christ by the mediation of the Holy Spirit from which the benefits of our salvation flow to us. And no doubt he's answering the question still of why work? Why does the Christian continue to labor for the Lord tirelessly instead of going to the beach and sipping the umbrella drinks? And the answer is the Christian again cannot help it. Organically, in his very being, he is united to Christ. The Spirit is in him. He must work. And how? How can you live under the law of love? And the answer again, Paul says, walk by the Spirit who brings all the power and the benefits of Christ and our salvation to us from God Himself, the second person in the Trinity communicated to us by the third person of the Trinity. This brings us from our first point, our, our soteriological, our salvation assumptions to our doctrine of man assumptions. Part of why the work of the Christian must go on, part of how the work of the Christian is to be done is rooted in what Paul assumes about redeemed humanity. His first assumption is that we know what time it is as we are Christians in the, in the flow of redemptive history from Adam and Eve created in the garden through their fall as we are redeemed in Christ not yet consummated, not yet made perfect in glory, that we know where we stand that in Christ's coming and in the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it is not as if heaven has come down and uh, we have full, automatic perfection and power. We are not at the consummation. Indeed, those sects of Christianity that have promoted a doctrine of perfectionism in this life are deeply naive as they should be reading Galatians five sixteen and following. No, we are an in-between people. We are an already but not yet people. The promises of God have come true for us, and yet also they are not yet. They will fully come true. Those in Christ who might say have been justified are being sanctified and will be glorified. We, as Martin Luther famously observes, are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just made righteous and sinful that is as Paul explains in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, the Christian uh, that we should worry about, or the Christian we should not worry about, perhaps, is the one who's struggling with their sin, one who's at at odds with their flesh. One who is um, doing spiritual battle. The Christian to worry about is perhaps the one who's contented. Who knows they've arrived at some level. No. um, The normal Christian life, as Paul shows us here, is one of struggle. We are not yet home. We are an in-between people. The one who is not fighting the lusts, who is seeking to tame the tongue or purify the heart The Christian life is one of struggle, we might say occasionally, externally with persecution, but always internally a struggle against the flesh as it stands opposed to the Spirit. Paul describes it in Romans 7 verse 21 following. He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, he uses the illustration of the athlete struggling against his own flesh, pummeling his own body to bring it into submission. This is indeed the day in and day out life of the believer. They are at work against the flesh empowered by the Spirit. If they believe, the Holy Spirit is making it possible and uniting them to Christ, from whom flows not only a righteousness that is imputed to us in our justification, but also a grace that enables and enlivens us, as we'll see, to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. See, Paul assumes we understand the fundamentals of our salvation, our soteriology, our union, the mediation of the Holy Spirit, bringing the distinct, inseparable, simultaneous benefits of Christ to us, and also when we are, that we are a people in struggle, a people at war with our flesh. And this, we might say, is the payoff, our our final point. The Judaizers who were attacking Paul, who were asking what will motivate the people to do good works? What will motivate you to follow Christ even though your salvation and heaven is assured? We can say with clarity that the Judaizers did not understand the gospel. So anyone who walked the aisle or prayed the prayer and uh, got baptized or whatever and treats that encounter as a kind of immunization from hell, as a ticket to indulge the flesh. You do not understand the truth. You do not understand the gospel. No, you see, Paul says, the Spirit, the Spirit, the work of Christ in our salvation goes far deeper than just knowing at some level about the reality of our justification no, it seeps into our very bones, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit as we struggle against the flesh. Our sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit seeps down organically into our souls, gives us a new heart, new desires, a hatred of sin, a love of holiness. No true Christian truly wants to indulge the flesh. Certainly there is weakness and temptation, but a true Christian, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, truly wants righteousness, holiness, Purity of conscience. That's a reality Paul assumes as well. That the struggle he describes of wanting to do right is actually there. There is something mystical, something mysterious, not just something logical that happens in our salvation. There is a spiritual reality, uh, something that isn't just something to un- be understood, but something experienced within. So Paul speaks about when he talks about the The Spirit at work in us. The true Christian, you see, can't help but work, struggle, train the body away from sin. And the how question. How do we stand up under the high calling Jesus gives us to love our neighbors as ourselves, the least of these, and even our enemies? Who can bear that burden? No one. But verse 18, but he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's Paul's key point. You're not under the law. That's the thing he's been repeating over and over and over again. Why? Uh, I, think, I think the imagery he uses is helpful. You're no longer under the law. It's no longer something weighing down upon you. you know, as the commentators mentioned, it's, it's rather a law that's not, uh, that you're not under, but it actually is under you. It's no longer above us weighing us down, but under us, We might say it, a, a pathway forward, the third use of the law, how the Christian is to thus then live in the law of love for which we were designed, changed unto, set forward in, becomes a great joy rather than a burden. It becomes a, a race I am happy to run, a hike I am happy to climb, a road forward in life I am happy to drive. It's, it's the freedom of the open road And every Christian is given a Ferrari. We have the power of the Holy Spirit turning in our souls, enjoying the goodness of God's grace and living in the freedom of the law of love. See, the law becomes a pleasure. You are not set free from, but free unto. There becomes a a river of life flowing out of you. We begin to sing Psalm 119, even as we sang it this morning in hymn 148. Of a delight upon law, something we meditate upon day and night, it becomes the very light of our life, the thing we enjoy and can't wait to study and grow more into when the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Now, the better question for the Christian is not why work or how work, but how not work? How would that be possible with the Holy Spirit who in verse eighteen says we are lead, is leading us, if, but if you are led by the Spirit, the hymn writer puts it so well: "O, oh, He leadeth me; O oh blessed thought, O oh, words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still 'tis God's hand that leadeth me." Galatians five sixteen to eighteen ought to be a deep encouragement to any Christian struggling in their sin perhaps feeling like they're in a losing battle against their lusts or their anger or their hunger. Such is the normal Christian life. The struggle is actually a sign of life within you. A lack of struggle ought to give us pause. Woe to those who have no struggle against their sin. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And the difference of walking by the Spirit or not by the Spirit um, You might say walking by the Spirit for the Christian as opposed to the Judaizer who walked by the law. It's the the same as perhaps um, the sign on the freeway that says 55 miles an hour and the policeman who's there to observe you. It's the same as, um, you know, at ball practice where, you know, you should always give your best effort and practice hard or not be going through the motions versus how you might practice when, when dad shows up to watch practice one day and the effort, extra effort you might put in to, to please him. Or, or even my children, when, when the grandparents show up, all of a sudden the piano practicing gets much better. They are pleased to show their grandparents all the progress they're making. So the Holy Spirit makes it personal being Coram Dale, before the face of God in our lives, we're we are not following an abstract law, a sign on the highway. No, God is with us. He's communicated to us by His Spirit. We walk with Him. We're led by Him. He is our shepherd, our loving Father who carries us along, to whom we give great delight as we walk by the law of love. You see, in our union with Christ, mediated by the Holy Spirit, having cleared the the distinct benefits that flow to us in the struggle, why do we work? How do we work? Because we can't help it. The Holy Spirit is a part of our salvation, always with us, showing us the way as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, may the Spirit be ever active in our lives and present in our lives. We thank you that He is that we are not alone, that it's not by our white-knuckled effort that we might grow in our sanctification, but that we are led, carried by the third person of the Trinity, mediating your presence to us. Father, may we be empowered with the joyful law of love to walk before you all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.